Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. From WWL Radio, New Orleans, 105.3 FM HD2 and always in HD at WWL.com, it's The Food Show a self-explanatory title for a rather simple show about a pleasurable topic. It's Dan Lalchuk, the gourmet cellist, the one and only, the favorite guest host of the region. I really am a cellist uh, and an aspiring gourmet, and uh, we encourage you to pick up the phone and call if you're so inclined to talk about anything at all having to do with dining in, dining out, cocktails, restaurants, recipes, Food memories, we, uh, we're big on that here. 504-260-6368. 260 menu. It's a coincidence, a total coincidence. 260-6368. We're going right now to a very special guest uh, who's been kind enough to join us via the telephone from Washington, D.C. It is Joan Nathan, a culinary force, I would say, almost a force majeure. Uh, Joan Nathan, we heartily welcome you to the food show. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes. Now, let me, of course, everybody listening uh, knows who you are, but in case there's one person who doesn't, let me just give a, a, <laughs> a, a, a quick background. Uh, Eleven cookbooks, including the latest were King Solomon's Table, a culinary exploration of Jewish cooking from around the world, uh, mm-hmm. the the book Quiches, Kugels, and Couscous, My Search for Jewish Cooking in France, was named one of 10 best cookbooks in 2010 by NPR, Food and Wine, and Bon Appetit magazines, a regular contributor to the New York Times, and uh, perhaps not uh, completely typical of food personalities, uh, experience working for Mayor Teddy Kolak of Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. How about that? Uh, so uh, a quick rundown, and uh, it's great to have you. Well, it's a great to be here. So it, I have the feeling that talking about so-called Jewish cooking is, is impossible because it's all over the world, and obviously it, it reflects the geography uh, and the place and the time. So how have you gone about uh, your decades of research and writing about and cooking Jewish food of different places? What, what, how do you even begin to get organized? Well, organization is not probably one of my fortes. But first of all, you you said a few things here. Um, I just came back from Sicily, and a woman in Sicily asked me, well, what is Jewish food? And then I realized that, you know, this was a country where uh, since the um, Inquisition, there have been no Jews in Sicily, not a country, but a part of Italy. And um, when I spoke to her, I realized, well, it's the same thing as Catholic food or Protestant food, except (laughs) that the Jewish dietary laws defines Judaism. That's one thing, and and Jewish food. But Catholic food can be Italian Catholic food or French Catholic food, and, and it's different. And so it's the same with Jewish food, because Jews have lived all over the world. 
also there's you know French Jewish food, German Jewish food, and the, it takes on um, the regionality of the country in which Jews live. So that coupled with the dietary laws and the the frequency of Jewish holidays, where every Friday, you know, Jew, many 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 Jews have a dinner together. So that a lot of these um, dishes um, just are, are, you'll find them on the holidays. And, um, and so that you'll find them each week repetitive throughout the year. Now, I imagine that many Jews in America are familiar with the... Hello? Uh, yeah. yeah. Are you still there? Yeah. Okay. It's, I imagine many Jews in America are familiar with uh, with Ashkenazi food, meaning the the Jews of Eastern Europe, uh, or put another right. way, uh, Jews of, of cold, colder weather climates. Um, right. What, what what is a quintessential uh, Jewish food that 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 might be mysterious uh, to a lot of people who have no clue what Jewish food is? That being said, obviously Israeli food is having an enormous a renaissance uh, here in New Orleans. We have a number of, of very fine, very well-regarded Israeli restaurants right. all over America. Israeli restaurants are, are sort of proliferating, which is wonderful. Uh, but but they're not really serving uh, what what I think of as Ashkenazi uh, sort of heavier, colder weather. I mean, uh, provide some clarity here. Well. First of all, I think that everybody is likes food from um, the southern climates more because it's lighter food. Um, Ashkenazic. Oh, just one second. Um, Ashkenazic Jewish food is is heavy. It's it's potatoes and meat, and so it's not really Israeli food. Israeli food is food of the land. So it's chickpeas, hummus. Um, uh, they might be turkey schnitzel. Um, uh, there are all kinds of cooked salads from Morocco, from Lebanon, from uh, Libya, uh, and from whatever Jews have come to Israel. But it's the lighter food that everybody wants there, and that's what's being, you know, coming here. That said, um, with Alan Shaya's restaurant, there's a lot of Bulgarian food and food that he grew up with. So, and that's very interesting food. His food is, is really quite, you know, it, it's wonderful and, uh, and colorful. And, and that's what people like today. But, you know, we're always looking for the different, but, it, but it's, you know, and, and you're right that Israeli food seems to be everywhere, but also now this diaspora food is, is in many places. There's a, restaurant in Buenos Aires called Meshugana. <laughs> um, and then there's, there's um, my, my son just told me about an Israeli restaurant in Berlin. And, um, you know, there is so many Israeli restaurants that are well, well regarded in London and, and in Paris, uh, right near the Rue Saint-Honoré. There's a very good one. Um, and this has never been before. And it's sort of, when I was at Alon's restaurant in um, New, excuse me, New Orleans, I noticed that 
um, there were people from all over coming to this restaurant. Um, the the and, and and a lot of them might not like a lot of the politics, let's say, in Israel, but they like Israeli food. So I think that food trumps politics in a way. Absolutely, and that that's one of the themes I always come back to on this show because I always say that everybody who loves music loves food, and everybody who loves food loves music. And, right, exactly. and there's so much. <laughs> the, the the two have so much in common in terms of the the communal aspect and the passions that they that they really bring out in everybody. You're absolutely right. Uh, you know, and and it's a, it's a, and as far as I'm concerned to, add, to to get back to your first question, the way that I've been able to learn about Jewish food everywhere is when I meet people and they know where I'm going like I just was a I led a New York Times travel journey trip to New Orleans, and then I went to Sicily. Well, I knew people through other people. And so I, you know, I, I try my best to get invited to their homes. And then, then it's when I, I can learn about all these recipes. Like in my uh, King Solomon's table, for example, there's a delicious recipe with spinach, and um, hard-boiled eggs and salt, you know, and the Passover Seder uh, my, in my husband's family, they start with what I call a salt water soup, and it's with um, hard-boiled eggs because, you know, you, um, you're supposed to remember the, the, the sadness and, and the everlasting um, universality of living, which is the egg, and um, so that's the way the, the Seder started. So when I was in Italy, I met a, a woman and her cousin. And her cousin was from Ancona, Italy, but originally from the island of Corfu. And she had this exact same recipe, with, but eggs that had been cooked for like eight hours. And in addition, um, the, there was a... Um, there was spinach, and when I made it for my family one Passover, they loved it so much that it's now become a Passover tradition. And it's in that book, uh, King Solomon's Table, and I thought, oh, this is such an esoteric recipe, nobody's going to want to make it. And it's made the cover of lots of magazines, and it's one of the most popular recipes in the book because it's different, and it's also iconic, and it tells the story of people. It's fascinating. So, so from a Greek island to to southern Italy on the Adriatic Sea, where Ancona is, which, by the way, for right. all all the people keeping track, is the birthplace of one of the great Italian tenors, Franco Corelli, Ancona, Italy, uh, uh-huh. <laughs> for for the for the opera for the mid twentieth century opera fans listening, of which wow. I'm sure there's a ton. <laughs> Uh, now, and there was a big Jewish community in Ancona at, at one time. There's a, a pretty big one today. Really? Uh-huh. Now, um, I, I want to rewind a little bit. Uh, you are a, a fellow New Englander, uh, as, mm-hmm. as, um, as, as I've learned, uh, originally from Rhode Island. Uh, how did you come to this whole thing to begin with? I mean, I, 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 I know a lot of people simply grow up with good food, and then they, they sort of think, maybe I can do something with this. But uh, what, what was the path to becoming a food professional? 
Oh, well, I learned French in high school. I grew up in, because I grew up in Providence, I went to a lot of Italian restaurants, like that kind of thing. My father felt I should live abroad in France because he felt that he was German-born and that a young girl must learn a foreign language. So I went and spent my junior year in France, and my father had always been a Zionist, and I, because of that, never wanted to go to Israel. And then when I finally went to Israel, I thought, wow, this is really something. And I decided I wanted to live there. So I went and lived there for a little bit and, you know, and had a wonderful time. And, um, and as a lark, wrote a cookbook about the Jews, Christians, and Muslims in Jerusalem, because I was working as Teddy Collick's foreign press attache, the mayor of Jerusalem. And um, it's uh, the book called The Flavor of Jerusalem, 1975, when I was pretty young, um, won, uh, well, it didn't win a James Beard Award because they didn't even have them then, but it sold about 25,000 copies. And that was, that lark became the beginning because I didn't really know a lot about Judaism, and I met a man who was a folklorist at the Hebrew University, and he said, I will never write about Jewish folklore, but if you promise to write a cookbook, I'll give you everything I know about <laughs> the symbolism, and that's what happened. So, uh, on a whim, you, you wrote a cookbook, and, and did you did you have to do a lot of research? I mean, did you, was this a... Oh, of course. I mean, was this yeah. a... a both into the content and into the how of, uh, of producing right. a cookbook. It's, it's, it's not so simple. Well, you know, the thing is you have to have an idea and you go forward with it. And um, you're right, I, I didn't know very much. But you know, I, I just did an article this week in the New York Times on, on horseradish. I don't know if you saw it. Yes, I did. Um, and somebody wrote me a letter, an email, and she's a teacher, and she said, well, how do you do such an article? And I realized what you do is you take an ingredient and you learn everything you can about that ingredient. And you don't and, – and if you've traveled as much as I have and you've, like, spoken to different people, like I never knew, for example, that Catholics – use horseradish at Easter um, for that they love to eat it, but they only like red horseradish uh, with beets in it. And it's, it's the symbolism for it is the body of Christ. So that's something I never grew up with. And I don't, and, but I've read about it. Um, and the thing is that you learn, you try to put in an article, everything that you've learned and of course, they took out a lot in the article. Believe me, but you know it's hard, and you don't get all this from just looking on the web. So you got to do a lot of footwork. Very interesting. And, no, and there's sorry. a lot of luck because I I had known some of the um, some of the other Gold brothers. But I didn't know um, Jason Gold, which is from Gold's Horseradish. And I met him at a party, and I thought, ah, oh, that's what I'm going to write about for, for Passover next year. So I saved his telephone number and then went from there. And it really has been very well received. The, the article's been very well received. So it's fun for me. 
you know, I, I love doing it. I love learning, and, and, and I love imparting what I learned to, for, to other people. Now, I'd love to talk uh, more with you. Uh, we need to take a quick break because it is commercial radio, after all. If you're okay. willing to hold through a brief break. All right. Uh, okay. And I want to get into a little more uh, uh, about the latest book, which is um, King Solomon's Table. Uh, and then I want to get into a little more about Passover cooking and spring cooking in general, um, if you'll be so kind as to hold through the break. Okay. Thank you. Uh, this is uh, the Gourmet Cellist talking with legendary food expert, cookbook author, uh, instructor, regular columnist for the New York Times, Joan Nathan, who has joined us live from Washington, D.C., uh, back after a very brief break on WWLHD2. Hello and welcome back to The Food Show. The Gourmet Cellist here, uh, 105.3 FM, talking with leading culinary expert of Jewish food the world over. It's Joan Nathan. Uh, welcome back. Uh, thank you for holding through the break. Well, thank you for being there. <laughs> well, I don't have a choice, but but you do. You could have hung up. Uh, now, um, King Solomon's Table, uh, as I understand it, is a sort of a global uh, book. You've written other books that, that are, are country or region specific. Uh, why did you feel for your latest book, King Solomon's Table, uh, you, you wanted to sort of zoom out and, uh, and focus on, on a somewhat a more broad picture? Well, I thought the idea of Jewish food being sort of global had to come from somewhere. And so I started doing a lot of research because I knew, you know, I had been traveling all over the world looking for Jewish food. And I realized that I I wanted to talk about certain things in the book like um, the centrality of Judaism and where it really came from and then where it wandered to. So instead of focusing on French food or another food that was in one different area, I decided to show the universality of Jewish food through different recipes and people all over the world. And how much does extra? That make sense? Well, it does, but yeah. but I, but it, given that you had spent decades already researching many aspects of this, what, what what were some of the gaps that you had to fill in? Well, I'd never been to India, for example. Um, but but a lot of the gaps I was able to do, believe it or not, in Brooklyn. <laughs> Because there are all kinds of Jews living in Brooklyn. Well, I do believe it. It's a it's a city unto itself of almost six million people, and probably the di- most diverse city it may be in the world. I, I, right. <laughs> so, so you were able to sort of uh, drive down Atlantic Avenue and stop when when they have these uh, basically one block to another. It's a whole different country. Right. Exactly. So that that's one of the things that I did, and. Um, I, you know, I found Azerbaijani. I wanted to go to Azerbaijan, but I couldn't get there. And I wanted to go to El. I went to El Salvador. Um, I and, and in Miami, I found a lot of Latin Americans. So that you know, that was one thing I could do. Isn't there a, a Jewish Azerbaijani restaurant in Brooklyn? Oh yeah, a lot of them. Uh, I, there's, there's, so I went to them. I went to them instead of going to Azerbaijan. <laughs> and, and, and it's it's very easy to get good Azerbaijani food here. 
in here meaning America or, or D.C.? Yeah, or Am- America. Yeah. America. Yeah. Do you find in Washington, D.C., you're able to uh, get some of these semi-exotic foods uh, as easily or, or there's, there's a sort of wide gulf? Uh, in, in every large city, you can get good food today. I think in, in every, especially Washington, D.C., there's a lot of diaspora food, not just Jewish diaspora, but all diasporas. Passover is associated uh, with, uh, obviously, a Seder, uh, which, which, for people who don't know, is, is what? Well, it's... Um, with the destruction of the first temple, the Passover Seder that was once well, a meal that would have been after going to a synagogue became the meal at home, and the the, the the home table became the in a way the altar for this for the story of the exodus of the Jews from Egypt. And so people had a home service at the table rather than in a synagogue. And that's what um, is celebrated. And the foods and of... So that's, yeah. and, the, and the foods the foods reflect, there are a lot of symbolic foods. There's a whole Seder plate, which has a, a hard-boiled egg that's got sort of an ash on it. Which shows the, uh, the the symbol symbolism of the of the temple in Jerusalem, and um, there's the, the uh, horseradish for the bitterness of slavery, and there is um, mortar for the Jews that were um, that were that were building using um, mortar to build buildings when they were slaves in Egypt and forever. And, you know, the thing is that I think everybody can identify with the symbolism. Um, there's the parsley and the, you dip the parsley in salt, which really is reminiscent of the, um, your, the tears that are shed and, but also of spring. So there's always a duality in all of these meanings. And then there's the Paschal lamb, which you take a lamb bone and um, you burn it, and that is the destruction of the. Well, actually, it's, it's the, on the one hand, it's the destruction of the temple, but it's also um, when the, the, during the seven plagues, um, you would dab the the blood on the doorpost of the house of the lamb and then the uh, the angel of death would pass over your home so there's a lot of symbolism for all the different parts of the seder table and they're mentioned in the story of the haggadah and the story is very important at the passover table especially for the children because the most important thing of passover is 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 carrying on that story to the next generation so, you know, we have a very big Seder at my house with many people from um, different, a lot of people that ask me to invite them to the Seder because they have no place to go. And Well, we I, have I, I have a lot 30, of places to go, but I would still ask to be invited to your Seder. Right. <laughs> that's, 
what actually one of my friends said. That <laughs> I, I had promised someone to come, but I hadn't seen her. And she said, she only wants to go so she can say she's been invited to your Seder. So. <laughs> well, if, if you invite me, I, I, I don't need to show up. I can just tell people that you invited me. <laughs> okay, uh, anyway, so. but it's, it's really lots of fun. And we do a play where the kids tell the story of the, uh, the exodus of the Jews and somebody's Moses and somebody's baby Moses. It's always the same story every year, but the kids love it. We love it. And it's, it's, it's the, for me, the Passover Seder is the best moment of the year. It's very exciting. And it's exciting to know that Jews all over the world are celebrating this one holiday at the same time. And it's next Friday, the same night as, um, uh, Good, Good Friday, Friday this yes. year. Now, so uh, you know, it's, it's very exciting. There, there's a great video of, of you online uh, with Melissa Clark on the New York Times, uh, where you uh, make uh, matzo balls, and uh, I would encourage everybody to go watch it. It, it looks uh, tremendous. I'll be doing that recipe this year myself. Uh, what else do you really like to make for Passover? I mean, we have we have traditional foods, but do you branch out? to a different country each year, or how do you plan? Oh, what, what other dishes? I assume matzo balls are, are ubiquitous. I do. Well, I make the matzo balls, but I also make um, gefilte fish, which is from my mother-in-law's tradition from Poland. I make brisket, which is my mother's tradition. Um, this year I'm doing all kinds of um, roasted vegetables. And then I'm you doing... Um, let's see. Um, I'm doing a dessert from Denmark, which is a big meringue tort with hazelnuts and chocolate, which was my daughter-in-law's mother makes it for Christmas. And we had it when we were at her house. It was just so delicious. And my father's family made this same meringue tort, but I liked my daughter-in-law's version better, so that's what I'm making. And then um, I'm also making something called a crimson, which was in my father's family, which was always a, like a fried matzo donut. And you wow. have inside of it um, almonds and uh, different dried fruits. But I'm making this year a version of it because I was in Italy. It's called the Pazelle. And it's got um, in it pine nuts and currants. And so I think that's going to be it's going to be very similar, but it's just going to show Italy. And then I'm going to make a lot of haroset. Uh, this year I've traveled extensively, so I'm going to make an Ethiopian haroset. Now, they never had haroset um, because they branched off from um, you know, Queen, the Queen of Sheba that came back to Ethiopia, and they didn't do this till much, much later. Um, and so they've they've added their own um, heroset. The one I'm going to make has figs and dates and a lot of ginger. So that I think that's going to be a lot of fun. And then I'm making an Italian one from Etta Servi Macklin, the author of a, a classic cooking of the Italian Jews. And it's, it's a Sephardic one that's with got dates and nuts and figs and all kinds of things. And it's, it's in circles. 
They're little in little balls. And she came from a town called Petiliano that I just visited this year, which was almost half Jewish. It's very small. It's called the Little Jerusalem. Petiliano. Tuscany. I, I, I've, I've been to this town. Yes, yes. It's, it's a, in some circles, a well-known town. Right. Yes. So, and then I'm going to do, I forget what it's going to be, but a Turkish one as well. So, because I, I spent some time in Turkey. And so that's what I'm making pretty much. I'm doing a, a, a chocolate tort and an almond lemon tort with lemon um, lemon curd inside it. A lot of good food. Well, it sounds pretty darn good. Um, I, I know we have uh, we have a, another break coming up. If you're if you're short on time, then uh, I'll ask a last question. If you're not, you can spend a few more minutes. Then we'd love that. Uh, up to you. Sure, sure, that's fine. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Th- thank you very much. You, you put the phone on speakerphone um, and get it away from your ear. Uh, we'll, we'll be right back. It's the master, okay. the la maestra, or uh, uh, <laughs> la maître, uh, since she speaks French, uh, Miss Joan Nathan, a culinary expert, Jewish food expert, Best-selling cookbook author. She's staying on because she's having so much fun on The Food Show with the gourmet cellist, WWL, back in a flash. It's The Food Show. We return now to scheduled programming with Dan Lelchuk, the gourmet cellist, sitting in here and having a great talk Carol. with Joe Nathan. And she's back. I think she's back. I'm, sh- I'm there. I'm there. She's there. Okay. Uh, you, you mentioned brisket. Now, it's actually brisket comes up a lot. Uh, you wouldn't think it, and I didn't know before living in New Orleans, but a bo- boiled brisket is is an old, uh, served with horseradish, is an old-time New Orleans dish in some of the oldest restaurants. Oh, really? Yeah, there's a very old one here called Tujags. It's been around for, well, since the 1870s, probably, uh, that, that has a classic boiled brisket with horseradish. Now, I never thought uh, it, that was a, a typical food here, uh, but uh, and Arthur Schwartz was on with me a bit of time ago uh, talking about his brisket, uh, people love brisket here, and I think for good reason, as they do everywhere. How do you uh, make your brisket? You mentioned, I believe it was your mother's brisket. Is that well, right? she, I, what I do is I take, actually, I make it as easy as possible now. I used to sort of sear it, but I don't do that anymore. I just don't, it doesn't make sense to me because it's cooked for so long, it doesn't really matter if you sear it in or you don't. It's just one less thing to do. So I take this larger brisket as I can, and I'm not, I don't take a, a, a brisket that's been really tri- trimmed because the, the fat is good for cooking. And you can always, I make it a day ahead and get rid of the fat afterwards, but you really want it in cooking the, the brisket. That's one thing. And then what I do is I put lots of onions on top. I put the fatty top up, put the onions underneath and on top. And I cook it with tomato and I cook it with a lot of red wine and I cook it long and slow. How long and how slow? Three, well, about a 325 oven for about three and a half hours. And then I and I cook it covered covered with liquid. I think you know people used to laugh about Jewish mothers overcooked dry brisket. 
I, I, I've, I've had some of that, but not for my mom. <laughs> <laughs> and then what I do is when it's cooked, oh, and I put lots of herbs in it and, um, oh, I don't know. I, I think that's pretty much what I put in it, but I, then I cook, let it cool a little bit. I used to let it cool really a lot, but I find it's pretty easy to cut it against the grain. And I cut it before the, the day that I'm cooking it so that either I freeze it or I'll serve it, but it's just the, everything's been done. So you just have to pop it in the oven. It just makes it a lot easier. And, and you serve it with egg noodles or... Or with well, not at Passover. At Passover, I just, I don't do potatoes. I just do lots of vegetables. Just so I vegetables. serve it with a lot of carrots. Carrots people really like with brisket. They, they do go together well. They're, well, they're both sort of earthy, earthy, deep flavors. Uh, right. Especially with, with the red wine. So you really, you mean cover it, cover it with liquid. Or, or... Right. I cover it, cover it with liquid so that it doesn't dry out. Wow. Uh and in terms of other things you like to cook in the spring, are you are you driven by what you see in the market, or or are well, you only yeah, research? I am, but yeah. I always, I mean, I, since I have thirty people, I don't make cartofiala Judea, but I might very well might want to do that because I love artichokes. Which which are the the and delicious the, Roman Jewish the, deep fried right, artichoke artichoke. Yes. And then I always have asparagus, but I have a friend make the asparagus because it's, you know, it, it takes a long time for 30 people to, do, to, <laughs> to, to make it really good. And then, um, and I have a lot of different salads. I like lots of salads. What else do you do in terms of spring cooking after the, the Passover holiday is over? What, what, what are you, what, what, what are you uh, passionate about recently? Well, I like to have, I love fraise de bois or good strawberries. Um, and I, I actually, for the Seder, I always have strawberries and asparagus just for a sign of spring. But, you know, I, I love any kind of spring vegetable. And I, I really like cooking um, from the seasons. So artichoke, um, spinach is always a spring um, vegetable. I do a lot of spinach in the spring. And how do you do um, it? Well, for the Seder, as I told you, I have the hard-boiled eggs in the in spinach. I have it in soups. Um, and I just have, you know, just regular spinach. I like that. I like string bean. I like all kinds of vegetables and fruits and um, but I do love spring vegetable soups, like a, a pea soup. There's nothing better than really fresh peas um, that we, you can only get in the spring. You know, and in Italy, you see all these people sitting on um, the stoop, peeling fava beans or fe- peeling regular oh, beans great. or peas it's just great. for the spring. It's great. Because food is so important to them. Absolutely. I, I went to part of high school in Rome and... Uh, in fact, lived in the uh, the Jewish ghetto, and uh, it's a rich food area. Uh, the main street in in the Jewish ghetto in Rome is a, is a paradise of of restaurants unto itself. Right, exactly. Now, do you have a uh, a favorite destination for food in terms of a region or a country? It seems like you're you're, you're quite a Francophile. 
Uh, I'm, I love France. I mean, I could go to France and Italy, and I think I could go to Europe for the rest of my life, you know, on vacations. <laughs> I, I love traveling, but I, I love the Mediterranean. I mean, I had the best almonds and noti in, in um, Sicily, the, just the best that I've ever had in my life. So different from what we have here. Yes. And, um, you know, and I love Parisian markets and and I love the way that, you know, you, you eat really good food. You don't have huge amounts. And I come back and I haven't gained weight, but I'm here a few days and I gain weight. <laughs> but it's just, you know, food culture is so important in these countries. Absolutely. I, mean, I like traveling anywhere. Well, yeah. I mean, last year we went to Vietnam. I love that. Um, but I particularly liked um, Italy and Sicily because so much of our history is connected to these countries. Um, last question. I'm, I'm very curious. Uh, Eleven cookbooks, uh, regular articles in Tablet Magazine and the New York Times and lots of other publications. You've, you've written a lot, uh, but the, the sky's the limit. So what is coming next? Give us a hint. At what, what are you working on now? What are you passionate about these days? Well, I'm passionate about my two new grandchildren. I have twins, that's for sure. Um, and I can't wait for them to come Sunday night. Um, but I, I'm just waiting to write my memoir, and we'll see. I'm waiting for my publisher to make a decision. That's coming next, a memoir? Yeah. Well, we'll look forward to it. Well, and I think New Orleans will be there because I love New Orleans. When so. was the last time you were here? Oh, I guess about a year ago. I came with my daughter. Well, maybe due to come back, lots of direct flights from Washington, D.C. Oh, well, I'd love it. I'd love it. Let now me know maybe, if and when you do. Okay, I will. I absolutely will. And we thank you so much for having joined us. I'm, I'm sure all the and, listeners and, and, and I do indeed appreciate it. Okay, thank you. Take care. Take care. Uh, there she goes, Joan Nathan, uh, grand dame of all things uh, culinary and uh, a true expert of, of Jewish food the worldwide. And it is a very wonderful cuisine uh, in New Orleans. There's there's a lot of uh, Israeli food. First of all, I think we have tons of Middle Eastern restaurants in New Orleans, and uh, Israeli food is uh, very common and experiencing uh, a real uh, renaissance uh, in America, uh, throughout the world, and, and even in New Orleans. So uh, if you've been to an Israeli or a Middle Eastern restaurant recently, call, because we're always looking for those. There's a, uh, a very easy way to get in touch with me. You dial 504-260-6368, 504-260-6368, and uh, you'll be transferred right over here directly to me. And if you've never called in before, uh, I encourage you to because it's really fun. You get to make a new friend, which is me, and uh, we get to have a good conversation. Uh, we're talking about Middle Eastern food. We're, we're zooming out a little bit because for the past 50 minutes we've been talking about Jewish food, which obviously encompasses uh, Israel, and there are some wonderful Israeli restaurants here. But now I'd like to zoom out a little bit, talk about Middle Eastern food. There's everything from Egyptian uh, to... Uh, Iraqi. There's, in, in fact, the the place. There's a place on Magazine Street. I don't know if you've been there. It's called Shawarma on the Go, and it's run by uh, 
uh, an Iraqi family who lives in New Orleans, and they make this terrific food, not just shawarma, but they make these unbelievable sandwiches. I usually get mine with kind of a uh, tzatziki and some uh, spice, the crushed red pepper, and it's a great sandwich there that they they cut the meat. You can choose between a few different varieties of meat. They cut it on the rotisserie right there for you with one of those big swords like you see at a Brazilian steakhouse, and they pile it on the sandwich, and I'm telling you it's one of the best bites of food you can have. It's on Magazine Street. I'm, I'm not exactly uh, sure of where, but I will uh, get that to you uh, momentarily. Uh, 504-260-6368. Middle Eastern food is on the docket now, and Kitty's on the line. Kitty, welcome to the food show. Hey, I've just been listening a few minutes, but I really have enjoyed what I heard. Thank you. Uh, I've never cooked a br- I've never cooked a brisket, but I'm going to now. It sounds great and easy, right? <laughs> yeah, but she didn't. She the lovely lady did not say what liquid, or I didn't hear what liquid did she mean on top she, of the. She said brisket. she said it must have been before you turned it on. She said that she did a combination of red wine and tomatoes. Red wine and tomatoes. So the whole thing is covered. With you know, red wine it, it, it's tomato. yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, I think she she does more red wine than than tomato, um, okay. but but just to, to give it that flavor. But but I I make brisket a lot, but I've never done it uh, with that much liquid. But it sounds darn good to me. And what about all that onion? Do you do it like that too? I, I do it with a lot of onion because I I find that after it's cooked for all that time, you 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 don't taste onion. It just tastes really good. <laughs> okay, uh, you know, well, I'm but, gonna. Uh... Get one and but, uh, but try it. Some people are, are a little apprehensive of, of a ton of onion. I, I, I have friends who really don't like more than a little bit, you know. Oh, I love it. But I, I love it, yeah. I'd eat one whole if I could. And me no. too. You, well, in, in Especially the, <laughs> a red onion. That's my favorite. Oh, those on a hamburger, those are great. Yeah. And one other question. Yeah. Uh, have you read any of the Advocate today, the 10 best Restaurants in New Orleans? Uh, no, I haven't. What's what, what's in there? Let, let me punch it in right now. Um, I, I don't live there anymore. I'm on the North Shore, so I haven't heard of like a third of them. But um, it was interesting. But also in the hundred restaurants, he did not even mention Antoine's, and I found really? that insulting. Yes. Wow. I didn't like that. Now, so what, it's one of my favorite places. Me too. People talk about the food, but to me, it's Everything about it, the food almost is doesn't make that much difference. I think it's good, but I, I just found I that agree. strange. Unless I missed it, I but I don't think I did. And uh, I agree with you about uh, Antoine's. Although I have had some uh, some really great food there, I I, I don't. I have too. I I think um, actually, you know, it's funny. A lot of people go for seafood there, but I I've had the best luck with with meat dishes there. Oh, their fillets are to die for. To die and for. And their sauces. Absolutely. Yeah. One of my favorite things is to go there. Uh, my, my brother, he lives in California, but he's a big foodie. And whenever he comes, we go and we get the Chateaubriand for two. Oh, and I have not had that. It's, re- had it's it. incredible. I mean, you, you need to have an appetite. <laughs> but <laughs> Well, I always have one when I go there. It's so. great. So, it works out great. So <laughs> any restaurants on this list that, that you, that other than Antoine's not being on, anything else that, that struck you as, as being appealing? Yeah, another or, one not on. In the Italian restaurants in 
used to be all the time was Del Porto over here. It's excellent. Oh, and yeah. I didn't mention it. Del Porto's supposed to be good, yeah. So that's about it. It just, Antoine's is just a favorite place up on. And I found that I didn't understand it. You know, so. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's strange. Anyway. Maybe they think they don't need any help or something, but I, I think Antoine's is great, and I always uh, like going there and, and uh, have a waiter there, and all my friends love love it. If you, But, you know, you have to get people to commit to dressing up a little bit and having a longer dinner, but it's great. But that's what makes it good. I totally agree. <laughs> you know I, mean? I, I, I couldn't all agree right. more. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Keep, love the show. Thank you. Keep listening, and thanks okay. for the call. All right. Bye-bye. See you later. Uh, there was Kitty talking about uh, Antoine's. I, I, I really do uh, like it a lot, and I, I don't say that just because she said it, and, and I know Tom likes it, but uh, I do like Antoine's very much, and I uh, I go there fairly regularly. The Chateaubriand for two I mentioned, uh, you get it, uh, if you're with me, then you're definitely getting it, Rossini style, uh, named after Tuacchino. Rossini, the great Italian opera composer who invented the dish, Tornado. Rossini, which is a uh, filet uh, uh, very tender uh, atop a piece of foie gras uh, covered in a delicious, succulent uh, Madeira sauce. Uh, It's a rich dish, uh, bring an appetite. But Antoine's does a Chateaubriand Rossini style. Uh, If you have objections to foie gras, I encourage you not to order it. (laughs) <laughs> but I don't, so I order it. <laughs> it's uh, the food show. 260-6368. 504-260-6368. You know, th- um, there's another place that that I really like. Uh, it is uh, a very reliable place, and they have locations all over the city. It's the New Orleans Hamburger and Seafood Company, believe it or not, since 19... 19- 84, and uh, some of my favorite things there, well, obviously, they have the, the famous garlic herb fries, uh, house-made onion rings. They have a big array of burgers, which are very damn reliable, I got to say. Uh, everything from uh, the big cheesy all the way to the Grand Parade, which is bacon, blue cheese, red onion, barbecue sauce. They have a hickory bacon cheese, nine locations throughout the city, everywhere from a few locations on Veterans, Uptown, 4441, uh, St. Charles Avenue, on the West Bank, in the French Quarter. They're all over the place. The New Orleans Hamburger and Seafood Company. You know, it actually is worth going there to get uh, some of their sandwiches, uh, including a grilled fish, uh, which is a uh, kind of a lighter option, Uh, shrimp tacos, Everybody likes tacos, and everybody around here should love shrimp because I think we have the best shrimp in the world. The producer's nodding. Yeah, he's, he, he's yeah, he, Logan. He said, "Yeah, we do have the best shrimp." It's true. Yeah, I I don't think New Orleans has the best everything in the world, but the Gulf shrimp are pretty darn good. Uh, and the grilled cheese and tomato soup—that's an interesting thing because it it's a classic combination: grilled cheese and tomato soup. Now it's a, a tomato soup, a generous bowl tomato, basil, and the grilled cheese is served on the side. And this has become like the classic pairing uh, at sandwich shops everywhere. Uh, And I like to dip the sandwich straight into the soup. Don't forget the club sandwich, single-decker club, all 
at the New Orleans Hamburger and Seafood Company, also available from all nine locations to go. The first hour of the food show is winding down and winding down quickly. But that's okay, you can call me and we'll get you straight in for the next hour. Only one more hour to go before it's the weekend. What are you cooking this weekend and where are you eating? Come on, tell me, I really want to know. If you don't call and tell me, I won't be able to sleep tonight. 504-260-6368. 260-MENU. 260-6368. What are you doing this weekend? It's The Food Show, 105.3 FM, HD2, and WWL.com. The one and only gourmet cellist. Back after the news. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.